making your way back to your seat. We'll get started again in a minute. everyone. Welcome back to everyone uh, watching at home. Thanks for hanging out and staying with us. So I'd like to talk tonight about um, an aspect of the practice that really helps us to both bring it into our life more and also to use our life uh, in our practice. And the, uh, the title or the topic of what I'd like to explore tonight is uh, Form and Spirit, Meditating Outside of the Box. So, uh, so a lot of challenges in our world today, in our society, our country, our planet. And uh, we need ways to strengthen resilience, uh, to bring wisdom to bear so that we can respond uh, with all of our skills and resources uh, and also to heal so that we actually have something to give, something to respond. So how can our practice help move, move us in this direction? So form and spirit. So any endeavor in life has both of these aspects, right? The form is the, the training, the technique, uh, sometimes even the rules, of a particular field, and then the spirit, or the essence, which can be many different things, right? Sort of the underlying principles, or the aim, or the purpose. And we need both, right? If we only have the form and no spirit, it gets rigid. It gets dull or lifeless. It's like playing a piece of music, and all of the notes are right, and the rhythm is technically correct, but it's flat. Right? There's no soul or there's no feeling in it if it's just the form. But if we're all spirit and no form, no structure, we're also losing out on something or missing something. Right? We might not be as skilled. We can lose our way. Um, we might be sacrificing a certain kind of power or missing the wisdom and the learning of the structure of whatever that discipline is. And there's that, you know, common saying, rules were meant to be broken, right? So that right there, then that idiom kind of captures bringing these two together, right? Like in any form of art, you need the structure, you train yourself first in certain forms, in certain rules, but then you move beyond them. Right, so whether it's a, you know, you look at art history, 
new forms of painting always kind of pushed the envelope beyond what were thought to be the previous rules of the game or a new style of music right, that bends the notes or plays with rhythm differently, even new theories of mathematics or physics. Right? You ta- they take the current understanding of a system and move beyond it, and departing with the previous structures but in order to move beyond the form of something, we actually have to know the form. We have, to, we have to train ourselves in the form. But if we only stay within that narrow form, we get limited by it. It actually cuts us off from growing and learning and expanding. So this is kind of a humorous story about this, this dance between form and spirit. This is from uh, a newspaper, The Independent, uh, quite a few years ago. So in June, after a British musical group named The Planets introduced a 60-second piece of complete silence on its latest album, the representatives of the state of the estate of composer John Cage, who once wrote four minutes and 33 seconds of silence, threatened to sue the group for ripping off Cage. But failed, said the group, to specify which 60 of the 273 seconds it thought had been pilfered. (laughs) Said Mike Batt of the group, The Planets, mine is a much better silent piece. I'm able to say in one one minute what took John Cage four minutes and 33 seconds. (laughs) So this is getting a little bit playful, right, with that sense of the spirit of something. So what, what, is, what does meditating inside of the box mean? Right? This means that we're following the forms of meditation blindly in some way. Right? So, and there's a lot, of, a lot of reasons why we might be doing that. Many of us, if we've gone to public school or compulsory school, uh, grown up in the dominant culture and our society, we get trained, we get taught to obey authority. So you come here to Spirit Rock and there's this stage with these big statues and someone's sitting up here saying, do this in your meditation. So, oh, the teacher said to do this, so I have to do this. And we just start doing it because someone said so. Right? That's meditating inside of the box. We're not actually questioning, why am I doing this? Is this helping me? Does this make sense to me? So the whole spirit of the practice that goes back 2,600 years is check it out. It's a modern translation of the Pali, ehipasiko, come and see. See for yourself, as we would say today, just check it out. See how it is for you. So rather than taking on the meditation practice and the techniques blindly just because someone said to do it, do it with a spirit of inquiry. Does this help me? If so, how? Another way that we end up meditating inside of the box uh, is trying to get it right. How many of you have noticed a tendency to judge or evaluate your meditation based on how well you're performing or succeeding? And then you feel bad about yourself, right? If you're comparing yourself to some imagined ideal that you've created in your mind and not living up to it. So the dominant culture here in the West, in the dominant culture, we're conditioned to get the grade, 
right? To achieve. And even beyond that, our sense of self-worth gets associated with how well we perform, right? So it's not just about getting it right, but am I good enough? What does this mean about me? So my own value as a human being starts to get equated with how well I think my meditation practice is going. Is this sounding familiar at all? Right? And if it's not going well, I can't do it, and I'm worthless, and I'll never, and so on and so forth. So this is getting stuck in the form and bringing all of our conditioning in life into the meditation practice. And it starts to create a lot of pressure when I have to get it right, and I should be doing it this way, and I'm not, so I'm no good. We start striving and pushing and getting tight. We maybe even feel afraid. These are not conducive conditions to meditation. So the key intention in meditation practice is learning. I said this at the end of our sit. What am I learning here? I remember I spent a few years um, living and working at uh, Spirit Rock Sister Meditation Center on the East Coast, Insight Meditation Society in my 20s. I was working as a cook there. And we would have meditation every day as a staff. We'd get together and meditate in the morning for 45 minutes, meditate in the evening for 45 minutes. And I was following the form, kind of blindly, just going and doing my meditation and bell rings and go on with my day. And then one morning, I remember very clearly coming to the end of the meditation. The bell rang. And because I had been working with one of the teachers there on staff with my meditation, and she was asking me questions about my practice, like, well, what's happening? What are you noticing? What happened? What do you do when you notice that? I came to the end of the meditation period, and I realized, I have no idea what just happened for 45 minutes. (laughs) Like, I was following my breath every now and then, but I wasn't really paying attention. I was just kind of going through the motions. Okay, feel the breath. Breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. Without actually bringing any genuine interest or intelligence to the process. So I wasn't learning anything. That's meditating inside the box. We're getting stuck in the form instead of using it properly. So what am I learning from this? We really need to pay attention to be interested in our own mind to make progress in meditation. This is a passage from Ajahn Chah, the Thai forest meditation master who was one of Jack Kornfield's teachers. I'm telling you, it's great fun to observe closely how the mind works. So how many of you have great fun in your meditation practice? Okay, this is one of the like, most profound meditation masters of the last century. It tells you something about how he's practicing. It's great fun to observe closely how the mind works. I could happily talk about this one subject the whole day. When you get to know the ways of the mind, you'll see how this process functions and how it's kept going through being brainwashed by the mind. And then he goes on to describe something about how he meditates. But it's that spirit of investigation and curiosity, right? You can feel how alive it is. So when we take on learning as the spirit 
of the practice, as a primary aim, it starts to change the whole tone of the experience. Right? If learning is our goal, it takes it outside of the binary realm of success and failure. It's more about exploring than getting it right. Think back to when you were a kid and you, you came to someplace new, whether it was a field or a new building or you know, someplace in town you'd never been before, and you just started exploring, checking it out. You weren't sitting there going, oh, am I doing it right? Am I getting it right, this exploring thing? What if I'm, what if I'm failing at this? No, it's just like, oh, what's around this corner? What's under that thing? Oh, look at that. That's cool, right? It's not about right or wrong. It's just about learning, opening up, seeing what there is. That's the spirit we can bring. And when we bring that spirit, we start to relax. We can actually begin to have more fun. And then what we start to see is this very interesting process of how the form and the spirit start to support each other and carry over into our life. So if we're bringing this spirit of investigation, exploration to our meditation, that starts to carry over into our life. What can I learn from this? How's my mind functioning? What is this experience doing to me? It's a different perspective on life that's cultivated. The seed of it is born in our meditation practice, but then it starts to infuse the moments of our days. And then the two stop being so separate. So a great analogy here is it's like learning an instrument, learning to play music. So I recently picked up the guitar again. I used to play in my 20s, and I stopped for a few years and reading, taking, taking some guitar lessons. So learning scales is really helpful. Learning the, the chord forms is very helpful. But the best way to learn an instrument is not only doing that, but also learning to play a song. Right? You start to hear the melody or the rhythm. And once you start to learn a scale or two or a chord or two, you can begin to mess around. Right? If all I do is play scales and chords, it's not fun. But if all I do is mess around, I don't actually learn anything new. The two support each other. The more I mess around and play, it's like, oh, that's kind of cool. That sounds neat. Oh, I want to learn more. The more scales and forms I learn, the more I can play and be creative. So it's this, it's this synergistic cycle. So what is the form and what is the spirit in the Buddhist path? What are these two dimensions of this practice? So we can understand the, the path, the whole path that the Buddha discovered and taught for 45 years. This path that's been passed down from generation to generation for over two millennia. We can understand it as having three main parts. So the first part is about opening the heart. Healing the heart, strengthening the heart. The second part is about learning to rest our mind. Learning to steady, gather, and stabilize our attention. And the third part is about developing wisdom. 
through looking deeply, starting to understand our own mind, starting to understand what it is to be alive, and what's really for our best welfare, not just individually, but collectively. So each of these parts, opening and healing the heart, steadying and resting the mind and developing wisdom, each of them has various forms, various training techniques, and a spirit, a kind of aim, a principle, a purpose behind it. And we can apply that spirit, those principles, to our life when we understand it. And the more we do that, the more it starts to infuse the meditation really starts to come to life. So I want to talk about each of these a little bit and just sketch out some. What's the form? What's the, what's the spirit behind it? So this first part of the path, opening the heart, healing and strengthening the heart, there's all kinds of practices that we teach, that we undertake on the Buddhist path that help us to heal relationally. Many of us growing up in the modern world can uh, sustain very deep emotional, psychological wounds just from the dysfunction of our society. Attachment wounds, kind of various pains, loss, grief, trauma. So how do we begin to repair some of that? How do we come back into balance and feel more connection and community and wholeness in our heart? So there's a whole range of practices in the Buddhist path for this. This, uh, this healing of the heart is obviously not limited to Buddhist practice. There are many other practices, uh, contemporary forms of therapy and healing that are very helpful in this regard. Within the Buddhist uh, system, some of the forms are things like practicing generosity. So taking it on as a practice to, to give, to share. This helps to heal relationally. We start to develop a connection. We feel our own sense of self-worth and dignity when we have something to contribute. Uh, the whole training in ethics, sila and poly. So living a life um, of virtue, Morality, having some code of conduct by which we live. This is another form of training. The five mindfulness trainings or precepts for lay people. Very important foundation of the path. And then various meditative techniques, like the ones I'll be teaching in a couple of weeks here, of loving-kindness practice, compassion, joy, equanimity. These all help to heal the heart. So within each of these forms, and I'm just naming them, I'm not going to go into depth with, with any of them tonight, but within each of them, there's certain core principles, a spirit that's animating them. And again, when we understand that spirit, it both helps to animate the form more, to bring it to life for us, and to bring the practice into our day-to-day in a more real way. So one of the core spirits behind this relational healing is explore what it feels like to give. How does it feel to share? How does it feel to hold on? What's that like? 
the Buddha talked a lot about living with a spirit of generosity, open-handed, freely giving, delighting in sharing. Those are some of the phrases he used. So this is about how we live, right? So I was like, no, I'll, I'll get the tip, right? Or picking up the phone and calling a friend to just see how they're doing. They're saying, no, sweetie, that's okay. I'll do the dishes tonight. You had a long day. Just looking for small ways that we can contribute and give and noticing how that feels. The cultivation of empathy. This is a core spirit behind the healing of the heart. And the whole principle of empathy is just like me. This person wants to be happy, just like me. This person feels scared sometimes, just like me. This person's going to get sick, just like me. This person feels pain, just like me. It's that sense that to others as to oneself, to oneself as to others. We start to break down that barrier, those illusions of our separation. And so this is a spirit that we can live with to see the humanity in others, to look for that. All of this is based upon really valuing relationship, having a certain kind of sensitivity to our words and our actions. The spirit behind the ethical trainings is non-harming. It's recognizing that none of us like to feel pain. None of us want to suffer. So how do I live in a way that doesn't add to the already immense suffering in the world? How do I go about my life in a way that doesn't cause harm? What we do and what we say matters. It has an impact. So the essence, the spirit is non-harming. Empathy, a relational sensitivity. When we take on both the forms and the spirit behind this first training, it starts to make the heart whole again. We start to feel stronger inside because all of these qualities, empathy, generosity, ethical, ethical living, these make the heart stronger. We feel more stable and confident and bright inside. At the core of all of these different aspects that I'm discussing is a very central property of the human mind, which is that it's malleable. Today we talk about this as neuroplasticity, right? That the brain can change shape and function through repeated experience. The Buddha grew up in an agrarian culture and he used a lot of nature metaphors you can think of your mind like a really fertile garden. Imagine the most fertile soil, rich, moist. Whatever seeds you plant there are going to grow. It's got enough light, enough moisture, all the nutrients. That's what our hearts and minds are like. Every action, every thought, every word is planting a seed Shaping our mind every day. So how are we shaping the mind? 
So this is the training and healing and strengthening the heart. It's recognizing that how we are living is creating the inner atmosphere of our life, of our internal life. The things we do, the things we say, what we do with our mind has an effect. It starts to shape our experience of ourself and life. And that when we bring a quality of intentionality to living, we can start to steer. We can actually start to cultivate that garden. We can go, oh, that plant's really bitter. (laughs) I'm going to stop watering that one. Oh, that one's really prickly. It hurts when I touch it. Maybe I want to plant some more of these fruit trees. So we start nourishing the healthy, wholesome qualities in our own heart and mind. Things like kindness, joy, empathy, generosity, truthfulness, compassion. And this uplifts the spirit. We start living in a very different internal atmosphere than the kind of resentful, frustrated, harried, impatient you know, way we can get in a rut. This is from uh, another Thai uh, monastic teacher who's still alive today, Ajahn Dun. We are our own refuge, so we must make an effort to train and develop ourselves. If we can train elephants and dogs to be tame or break horses of their wildness, then why can't we train our own hearts? He's pointing to, again, the sense of cultivating our own mind. So those are some of the aspects of the spirit of this first part of the path, of healing the heart, opening the heart. Then we come to resting the mind. Learning to steady our attention, to gather our resources. This is the form or the technique that's most often taught in meditation circles. Just come back to the breath, right? That's a concentration technique. It's the easiest one to teach and the hardest one to learn. So we live in a world of distraction where the whole kind of flow of our society and technology just keeps fragmenting our attention, pulling us in a thousand different directions postponing our sense of satisfaction into the future with more consumption. And there's a Starbucks on every corner in every city around the world, it seems. We don't get a lot of messages from our culture that say, slow down. Why don't you take a breath? Have a rest. No, it's go faster. Have another cup of coffee. Right? That's the message. So, This aspect of the path is going against all of the forces and messages of our culture. Actually, all of the aspects of the path are going against the messages of our culture. So this capacity to rest, and I don't just mean going to sleep, I mean a kind of deep, refreshing sense of quiet inside is necessary for any work, for accomplishing any goal, we need to be able to focus. We need to be able to gather that sense of being scattered, fragmented, pulled in a million different directions. And I remember in high school and uh, college, you know, like reading the same sentence or paragraph over like 20 times, 
because the mind just kept, right? It wasn't, it wasn't gathered. It couldn't focus. So some of this aspect of the path is also about developing a certain kind of resilience. And when we can take a break, when we can turn the noise down, we refresh our hearts. And one of the things that this world needs is people who aren't exhausted. People who aren't so stretched thin that we just say, oh, I don't care. I can't deal with it. Right? How do we recharge? So this is what this aspect of the path is teaching us to do. And these are concentration techniques. There are many different forms, many different techniques. Meditation exercises, following the breath, using a mantra, doing visualizations, uh, reciting metta phrases, loving kindness phrases. All of these work in the similar way of gathering the attention. By eliminating the variables, we just choose one thing whether it's the breath or a mantra or an image or a phrase, and we just keep coming back to it with a single-minded quality of intent. Everything else can wait later. This is what's most important now. And over time, with a steady, patient, loving attention, the mind starts to gather. So... The form are these techniques, these training exercises. The spirit of it, though, is what's needed in order for the practice to work. We need to understand how it functions. So it's a natural process. The mind settling and getting still is innate. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen teacher, poet, and peace activist, he talks about a glass of uh, apple cider with lots of pulp in it, right? If you put it on a counter and leave it there for a couple of hours, what happens to all of the pulp, right? It settles and you're left with this clear, pure juice. Now, if you take a spoon or a chopstick and you stick it in there and try to push the pulp down to the bottom every few minutes, what happens? It just stirs it all up, right? So what do we do when we come to meditate? Focus on the breath. Stop thinking. Don't think about that. No, no, no. Don't do that. Don't do that. We just keep stirring it up. So some of your job in meditation with the concentration is just to let that juice sit. You just create the container. And then you let things move on their own. They'll settle down on their own. If you just keep holding the space with a very firm, warm, and kind intention. This is from the author Annie Lamott. She said, almost everything will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes, (laughs) including you. So we need to learn to do that, to unplug, right? To stop planning the next thing or running the to-do list or rehearsing the conversation or nursing that old grudge. So the spirit of learning, this is a natural process that we can discover in ourselves. Instead of just hammering away at the technique and kind of bearing down on your mind or trying to pin your attention to one point and keep it there, having a spirit of exploration, 
How do things settle? What's enjoyable here? What would it be like to let my mind rest? How can I put down what's not essential, what's not needed right now? These are the kinds of questions to ask yourself in this part of the practice. And we all know this. We all have moments and experiences in life where everything comes together and we want to be there, right? Spending time with someone you love, looking at a beautiful sunset, listening to your favorite piece of music, right? Lovingly preparing a meal. You don't have to work hard to concentrate. Why? Because you want to be there because you care about what you're doing. And so all of our faculties and energies come together, right? It's not tight, it's not rigid, it's flexible, it's alive. That's the quality of samadhi, concentration. It's not a forced state. It's a state that comes from a combination of relaxation clear intention and interest. So when we, when we start asking ourselves the right questions in our meditation practice, we start looking for it in our life. Where am I naturally focused? What's that like? How does it arise? What am I genuinely interested in? How do I start to feel relaxed? Where do I feel a sense of pleasure and enjoyment? a feeling of being engaged with the process of what I'm doing. And as you start to notice that, what that is for you, maybe it's cooking, maybe it's drawing, maybe it's taking a walk, maybe it's brushing your pet. It could be anything. But as you start to notice those moments in your life, it's like, oh yeah, that's what it's like. And you bring that over into your meditation. Oh, it's just like petting my cat. Or it's just like cleaning the bathroom, you know, whatever your thing is. Where do, you, where do you feel like you're in the zone? So we take the spirit, we start to feel it out, to explore it and taste it. And then we start to see how the form and the spirit support each other. We find the technique, whether it's the breath or loving kindness phrases or chanting. There are many ways to cultivate concentration. You find the right form for you, and then you bring that spirit in. And, and when we learn, when we start to learn how to let the mind rest and settle, this is a really valuable skill in life. You start to learn how to relate to your thoughts. Which ones to put down? You say, no, that's not helpful. I'm not going to think about that now. And it just sits there. You don't need to fight with it because you've trained your mind to stay where you want it to stay. How to let go and begin again. We do this thousands upon thousands upon thousands of times in our meditation practice. It's a really valuable skill to learn how to do that with a sense of lightheartedness and kindness. 
so that in our life, when we're having a conversation with our beloved and we say one thing and they hear something else and we're like, oh my God, (sighs) let go, begin again. All right, let me see if I can try again. That wasn't what I meant, right? How many times do we need to do that before the heart starts to learn how to put something down? So this is that second phase of learning to rest the mind, to gather our attention. The third phase, which is supported, each of these supports the next, right? It's like you're building foundations and then drawing on them. So when the heart feels whole and warm and bright, then the mind can settle. When the mind and the heart can settle, then we can start to, to really learn We can start to study our experience to get intimate with the mind and with what it is to be alive and understand more deeply how our mind works. This is the cultivation of wisdom. And wisdom in the Buddhist tradition means that we know what leads to peace and what leads to more struggle. What's for our welfare and what's not for our welfare. Not knowing it up here, but knowing it here, in our heart and in our body. Like my first teacher used to say, once you touch fire, you know that fire is hot. You don't need to think about it. Once we really know suffering, once we understand the mechanism in the mind and the heart of what creates struggle and stress and difficulty in our life, you don't need to think it. The heart just understands, okay, I'm making this worse. So this is the practice of vipassana, insight meditation, what we teach here. And that's the form. It's this moment-to-moment awareness with a certain quality of loving investigation. We're observing our experience very carefully, very closely, with this intention to understand. Michelle McDonald, one of the senior teachers in our tradition, she talks about mindfulness as connection without control. This is the quality we're aiming for in our meditation, how to really connect and get intimate with our experience without that added bit of manipulating it controlling it, trying to make it fit the way I think it should be. And that's what we study. We study that relationship over and over and over and over again. And we see what does the energy of control do to the heart and the mind? What does the energy of manipulation, of coercion, of domination, these very powerful forces that are destroying our communities and our planet? We see them in our own heart and mind on a moment-to-moment basis. And we learn how to release them. Not how to dominate them more and make them go away. That's just more of the same. How to understand their nature and allow them to dissolve. How to find a different way of being that's not based on control. It's not based on dominating and exploiting and oppressing and winning and exerting power over another being, another person, another system. 
how to be in relationship in a different way. This is what we learn through the practice of insight meditation. And so what's needed there is this quality of investigation, of learning, a spirit of enthusiastic, interested wonder. That's the spirit. How do we get curious? How do we get interested in our own mind? How do we get interested in what it is to be human? To not take things for granted. Albert Einstein said, there are two ways to live. You can live as if nothing is a miracle, or you can live as if everything is a miracle. I used to do a lot of work with... um, children and and young people in schools teaching mindfulness. And um, one of the teachers that I was working with who taught mindfulness would, uh, at the end of the school year, would have the students talk about when they would be mindful over the summer. This is what some some of her students said. I will be mindful when I think about eating a marshmallow. I will be mindful when I swim in the ocean with all of the beautiful things to see. I will be mindful when I relax and breathe in the sunshine. I will be mindful when I sit under my favorite tree and breathe. I will be mindful when I listen to the stream. There's something we can learn from those younger than us. They still remember, they still have access to that quality of wonder and awe. They know how to ask questions. So another teacher um, works with uh, a very fun practice. They'll, uh, they'll begin with the statement, I wonder. And each student in the classroom will offer something that they wonder about, a question or a curiosity. And then they gather them all up and they consider together what question they're all most interested in. And the teacher calls it the most beautiful question. I love that. The most beautiful question. So one example was, how does the heart get feelings? And then the students will all sit in a circle with the teacher outside of the circle just listening. And the only rules are that one person speaks at a time and no raising hands. And lets the students talk about and explore the topic on their own. So what would it be like to find that question for you? What's the most beautiful question? Why do you meditate? Why did you come here tonight? If you don't know, ask. It's the asking that's more important. Because when we're asking a question sincerely, it does something to the heart. We get interested. We start listening. That's the spirit of investigation and curiosity that we need to learn. So I think I want to close with a a little bit of a radical quote from... um, Another, quoting a lot of the Thai forest ajans tonight, another one of the Thai forest meditation masters, uh, Ajahn Mahabua, who passed away a number of years ago. 
I came across this quote early in my practice and um, it really inspired me. It, uh, it gave me a sense of freedom to explore, to not fall into the trap of following the form blindly and just obeying what someone said. So he was considered to be a fully enlightened being, this, this teacher, Ajahn Mahabua. I can't tell you how you can become enlightened. I know what I did for myself, but I can't tell you what's going to work for you. Each of us is different and unique. Each of us has their own predilections, backgrounds, and interests. And these things can only be understood by you personally. So if you ask me my meditation method, all I can tell you is to watch yourself. Watch your own life. Try different things out and see what works for you. What works, keep doing. What doesn't work, discard and go on to something else. So I'll stop here and offer these reflections for your consideration. I invite you to take what's useful and what's not to just discard it. So, my friends, we have a little bit of time if there are one or two questions about your meditation practice or about anything that I've shared tonight. No pressure. Yes, this uh, person down here in front in the gray. Yeah, just keep your hand up so they can see you. Thanks for coming. Get home safely. Yeah, I just have a question um, about fear and doubt, just mm-hmm. self-doubt that comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, assuming that those are like naturally going to yes. happen anyway. Yeah, right. Um, and also, I think the doubt piece is like, oh, then um, it's not right. You're not doing something right mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of the fear. Mm-hmm. Um, so... So how to work with those, what to do about them, yeah. Um, so yeah, I would agree with what you said, that those are just very natural emotions and mind states that come up in life as well as in meditation practice. Um, the So the tricky part about doubt is that when we start doubting ourselves or the meditation practice or our teachers, it can, uh, it can stop us from practicing. So, um, the key is to learn to recognize it as doubt. So just start to, to notice what are the thoughts? How does it feel in your body? Like what's the, what's the, what's the vibe like when you're in that state of doubt? There's a certain quality to the thinking, a certain cyclical nature. You start to feel maybe a little bit small or like not as steady. So there's a whole kind of constellation emotionally, mentally, physically that comes with the doubt. So you want to start to get familiar and intimate with that state so you can recognize it. So that when it occurs, you call it out. It's like, oh, wait, I, I know this one. This, this is doubt. It's not who you are. But um, by that point, 
but oh, sorry. By that point, I'm um, I'm reacting. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, when the reaction kind of comes into play, yeah. at that point, um, just by calling it out, sometimes it doesn't feel like that's enough. Mm-hmm. It's it's the first step. It's the first step. So, and as you do that, you'll start to notice it sooner. Um, so other things with the doubt or the fear, you want to try to, uh, if it's really strong and you feel like you're spinning, do whatever you need to, to get out of it. So put on some music, make some food, go stomping outside, pick up the phone and call a friend. It's like once you're really stuck in an unskillful mind state, whether it's doubt or fear or anger or pain, if you're just kind of doing this, do whatever you need to, to, to put your attention somewhere else. Okay. Because at that point it's, it's not conducive anymore. Um, over time you want to develop the capacity to learn to see doubt as doubt. It's just a mind state and we need to get caught in it over and over and over again to start to learn how to just recognize it. It comes and it goes. So you want to start to notice how it changes, that it's impermanent it feels really real and true when it's present. And when it's not present, it's like, what was that all about? So you want to notice the arc of how it changes like that so that the next time you're stuck in it, there's a part of your mind that remembers, oh, this is going to change. This is just that place. It's just like a rainy day. It's like, oh, it's gray right now, but it's not going to last forever. With the fear, um, fear is, can be a very healthy emotion. You know, it's there to protect us. Sometimes fear in, in practice, in spiritual practice, is a sign that we're entering the unknown, which is where we actually learn. So you want to look and see, what's the fear about? Is it just I'm creating stories in my mind and projecting things onto the future? Or is there actually something uncertain that I'm touching that's real, that's important to stay with? There's one more thing I was going to say. You know, both of those states are uncomfortable also. So you want to, you want to notice that, notice that they're unpleasant and um, uh, see if you can start to develop the capacity to tolerate the discomfort of them without needing them to go away. Yeah, there's a lot of freedom that comes when we can, when we can do that. Thank you. Yeah, this, did you still have a question? This person over here in the corner also, yeah. I, I had a question. I had a question about, um, you, know, you sort of started with out-of-the-box mm-hmm. meditation. Right. But I was curious if you had any, you, know, you often hear meditation teachers give little tidbits of, out of the actual out of the box meditation, which is mm-hmm. don't worry about your two hours a day or your mm-hmm. one hour a day. If sure. You get three minutes on the side of your bed before you get out right. of bed. It's sort of an out of the box strategy in yeah. the sense of sure, sure. Uh, meditation. I was curious if you had any other thoughts oh, on, on entering and exiting meditation in a non-traditional way. Um, so maybe make sure I'm understanding your question. Are you, are you speaking about like ways to, quote, meditate in daily life that are not about sitting still for 45 minutes? Or you, ta- or you said something at the end that sounded different, which is about entering and exiting meditation. Are you talking about yeah, like... Yeah, I sort of see them as one and the same. But yeah, okay. so it, it, out of the box, 
uh, relationships with meditation that sure. you know are not what you described at the beginning, where you're just coming in and following right. this, this, this technique, this, where right? Where it's sure. more okay to either find your way or yeah. a way to find your way. Great, great. Uh, yeah, so I'll share a few things. So first of all, that that course that uh, Christina mentioned, Next Step Dharma. There is a flyer out on the table for it. That's that, that's that whole course, seven weeks of ideas, and we have a live call every ten days. Uh, where you can ask questions in a small sangha online. So definitely check that out, because the whole aim of that course is how do you bring the meditation practice into your daily life in little ways. Um, but uh, a, few, a, few, a few tips, and this will maybe be the last thing I'll, I'll share, um, the, last, the last question. So one I just want to frame here, um, using the meditation forms and training techniques is really helpful, right? It's not that we just throw those out. I know you're not saying that, but I just want to make sure that that's really clear. It's like playing the scales on an instrument. You can't make music if you don't learn some of the forms, unless you're a prodigy or genius, which probably very few of us are meditation prodigies in this room or geniuses. If you are, uh, let me know, because I have some questions. (laughs) but, you know, so we use the forms, and then we also want to have time where we're exploring. So a few, a few suggestions and tips. One, give yourself time during your formal meditation practice every now and then, once a week, twice a week, ten minutes, where you just let go of the technique. Just sit there. Just explore your own mind. See what happens. Really, really useful to do that. Okay, so that's one very important one. And then they're all, they're all, they're very, a whole range of ways you can creatively bring the qualities of awareness and meditation into your daily life. For example, when you wake up in the morning, before you get out of bed, just lie there for a few minutes and reflect on how you want to spend the day. How do I want to live today? What seeds do I want to water? Do I want to be impatient or patient? Do I want to tell everyone what I know or would I rather listen to other people? Do I want to be kind or petty? Like, what are the qualities I want to cultivate? How do I want to live? Two minutes, five minutes, ten minutes. Great way to orient for the day. Uh, Before you leave your home, when you walk outside the door, pause. Just breathe. You're alive. Who knows what's going to happen today? It's a great moment to just have a moment of awareness. Right? Before you come back home at the end of the day, whether you live alone or with other people, what are you bringing back into your home? What do you want to let go and leave behind? So let that threshold to your home be a really important transition. Every time you leave or come in, you make that a moment of awareness, kind of make a ritual out of it. Before you eat, bring some quality of gratitude and intention to the process of eating. Life consumes life, so how are we using the energy that's gone into the food? What's the purpose of your life? It's not just about fuel or or gratification, but what am I doing with this energy? How do I want to take the life energy that has somehow appeared on this plate that I have been gifted by this earth and and use it for, for something in the world? Okay, so there's all kinds of ways you can use just the mundane activities of our day, getting dressed, bathing, commuting, to make those meditation practices. And you can get really creative with it. 
All right. So I thought we would just, could just end with a, a moment of quiet. We can just check in afterwards if you have another question. Yeah. So just invite you to uh, turn your attention inwards for a moment. Just let your body be still. And uh, invite you to ask yourself, what's one thing I learned tonight that I want to remember? What's one thing useful that I want to take with me? And once you've got that, then ask yourself, what's one thing I can do in the next 24 hours to help remember? Make it really specific and concrete. Any learning, any benefit or insight from our time together grow and multiply within each of us. And may it ripple outwards in all directions for the safety, the happiness, and the freedom of all creatures everywhere. so much so if you'd like to stay in touch I would love that Uh, there's an email list out in the foyer if you're still listening online you can go to my website orangesofer.com and uh, look forward to seeing you again have a great night everyone thank you for listening To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.